0: Gangary the podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu jdm. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com.
1: Hey podcast listeners, just a note to let you know that this Gangry the Podcast will be the last one until September. We're going to take a hiatus and regroup and line up a bunch of great reporters to talk to in the fall. So you've got plenty of time to catch up on all the Gangry Podcast episodes you haven't listened to yet. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. There are 25 episodes in all, and collectively, they've been downloaded and listened to more than 20,000 times. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week, I talked with Walt Harrington. Harrington is a former staff writer for the Washington Post Magazine. He's now a journalism professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Harrington has written a number of award-winning books, including The Everlasting Stream, which was turned into an Emmy-winning PBS documentary. Harrington's book, Intimate Journalism, has been a staple of journalism writing classes for more than 15 years. Last year, he co-edited an anthology called Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists. He produced that book with Esquire writer Mike Sager, a former podcast guest. This book features 19 stories written by journalists who are all under the age of 40. In March of this year, Harrington released a new book himself. The book is titled Acts of Creation America's Finest Hand Craftsman at Work and consists of 14 portraits of people who work with their hands, including a fireplace maker in Maine, a cabinet maker in Maryland, and a locksmith in Ohio. As usual, we've linked to Harrington's books on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Walt, thanks for joining Gangry
2: the Podcast. I'm glad to be here, Matt. Appreciate it.
1: Let's start by talking about your new book, Acts of Creation. Um, what made you want to write about hand craftsmen and, and what they do?
2: Well, I uh, had a lot of friends, a number of friends, who were smart, college-educated um, men who uh, had elected to leave that, that world and uh, go back to... Um, you know, building houses or building decks. Um, and I understood that, uh, and also my father had been a blue-collar guy who also could fix and build anything, and he was a very smart man. And I, I had all long resented um, the, the sort of the upper-middle-class um, intellectual um, elite attitude toward people who who work with their hands and their bodies um, who get dirty with, with the idea that somehow they're th- they're they're makers of brute force mm-hmm. they really replace machines um, and uh, and I just intuitively knew that this wasn't right it wasn't true and um, I had uh, we had a, a, a weird, space next to our fireplace in the house we lived in at the time and we wanted to have a cabinet that would fit there and so we found a, a furniture maker um, we'd actually bought a, a, a coffee table that we saw in a gallery somewhere um, and it was by this this young furniture maker and uh, we asked him if he'd make a cabinet for us and talking to him and realizing um, how creatively he thought about what he did how bright he was um, made me think I'd like to, I'd like to write about these people. And at the time, I was leaving the Washington Post, and um, and I approached my former Washington Post magazine editor, Steve Patranik, who was at the time editor of This Old House magazine, who worked with another brilliant editor, David Grogan, under him, um, and said I'd like to do you know a series of stories about the creativity of fine craftsmen. I literally was thinking of it in those terms, and he said that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so he um, he tagged the series an American Craftsman, and um, and I proceeded to you know over the next few years do fourteen of these Mm -hmm. of these portraits of. of fine craftsmen uh, and because it was this old host magazine they tended to be people who were doing things in the in the home crafts as mm-hmm. opposed to the fine craft of, of building a uh, you know a, of throwing a pot or something mm-hmm. like that they tended to be architecturally mm-hmm. oriented in what they did um, but it still allowed me to get into the whole this whole realm and um, you know as it turned out uh, out of the 14 ten of these people were college-educated and none of them were Educated in in art, I mean they had philosophy degrees, and one woman was Phi Beta Kappa in history or something. Um, you know they were they were smart, conceptual, thoughtful people, and it really um, it really ended up being a collection of pieces that's really about um, the cast of mind, values, and habits that create the possibility that you might be able to achieve excellence, mm-hmm. and in that sense. I think clearly it's, you know, it's it's these stories are generalizable far beyond the idea of um, of 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 craft making. In fact, what they illustrate is that the um, the people who make fine objects and who work with their hands at the highest levels, that essentially their form of craft and creativity is. Exactly the same form of crafting creativity of anyone who does anything, from computers to law to, frankly, what we do as um, as nonfiction uh, writers and journalists. Right. Yeah, I
1: was going to ask um, that it, it seems like, and I, a lot of what I've read in terms of like reviews of the book are like, uh, this is these what these people do is no different than what what you have done with, with the, the with their stories in in crafting their stories as well. Uh, and I was going to ask, I mean. Obviously, you were able to relate with a lot of what they do, um,
2: you know, as artists almost. Well, I, I've, uh, it's been gratifying because I didn't really talk about that in the book at all. Um, and it's It has been gratifying really to see so many people make the link between the notion of the craftsmanship of, of what these folks create and the craftsmanship of the stories that, um, that, that, that are in the book about them. And I, I was, I was thoughtful about that all the time as I was doing these, that essentially, what I was doing was really not much different from what they were doing. Although what I was doing was with words and reporting and observation and collection of detail. But again, that notion of, uh, you know, the, 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 the cast of mind that says we, we take what we do seriously. We, um, we read people who are better than we are. We, um, we take a philosophical stance on what we do. We have, um, you know, values that are that are that are that are related to the way we tell stories and the honesty of, of the stories we tell um, and the importance of that and our commitment to that. And then, of course, um, our our habits, our work habits, um, you know, how 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 determined you are, how attentive you are, how willing you are to burn the midnight oil and. Um, and do rewrite after rewrite. Um, these are these are the same things that you see in, um, you know, in 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 the in the hardwood floor man who who quotes Wordsworth, and how he wants a little piece of the intimation of immortality in the floors he creates. Um, he laughs and he says, you know, I know that's a little pretentious, but, um, that's the way I think about what I do. And interestingly enough, the number, the several of them who independently of one another, um, are, are, are fans of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and 100 years of solitude. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the guy who does ornamental, ornamental ceramics, architectural ceramics, giant architectural ceramics pieces for buildings and who, you know, talks about uh, why God made man out of clay, and uh, and how when 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 the Bible says that man was made in the image of God, it doesn't have anything to do with arms and legs. It has to do with the idea that God had to create, and man is made to create. Um, these are people who who in, imbue what they do with um, an effort at philosophical understanding, and um, I think it's it's the it's that it's that which allows people to do more than just become good at putting pieces together. Um, and the people who talk about uh, the woodworkers who talked about how you know there's nothing glamorous about sanding and resanding and resanding and resanding a piece of wood, but when your goal is at the end for that piece of wood to feel like um, a sheet of ice when you when you when you when you rub your your fingers across it. Um, and, and, and that 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 sensation that is transferred to the owner of the object and what that creates in their heart and their mind when they feel that sensation. I mean these are people who are who are playing at multiple levels mm-hmm. of, of determination and gritty craft and hard work and um, also thoughtfulness about what it is they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I just think you will not accomplish more than um, workmanship if you don't imbue your work with these higher-level concepts about what you're doing. And it certainly is true for what we do as um, nonfiction writers.
1: Uh, as I was reading, as, as as I was reading the book, it it, it kind of occurred to me that it, that those types of pieces it could have been very easy to fall into a formula into a formulaic type of writing um you know you're but you don't do that um you know you're considering you're writing about all they're all craftsmen um, so it could be easy to as they're doing a project so it could be very easy to kind of fall into that trap and you don't was that something that you were cognizant of as you were as you were writing the pieces or or not I mean
2: yes and no because I I think they are pieces that revolve around um, a formula, um, a structure, and that formula is to is the formula often of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, as as nonfiction writers, we immerse ourselves in other people's worlds. We observe and collect, and um, and uh, we are watchful of of, of multiple details, and we we are thoughtful about collecting material through all our senses Um, we're thoughtful about trying to create a sensory experience for our readers um, and we are thoughtful about trying to go inside the subjective meaning um, of the subjects that we're writing about and so in that sense they did follow um, the steps that would be formulaic and I also made the assumption in the beginning that I would follow a person through um, a point in their process of craft creation um, that would be illustrative of the way hand and mind had to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then around that with digression, wrap the larger story of how they came to do what they do and then how they think about what they do. Um, I was not in the beginning Really, as conscious of how uh, how universally um, conceptual these folks would be about what they did, um, and you know, people who work with their hands, as the as the blackness says, people people who work with their hands um, are not verbal because the knowledge is not verbal, mm-hmm. um, and um, it, it's thinking. Thinking is doing. And, um, you know, the whole notion of um, would uh, would um, would a would a great swimmer be able to really explain to you exactly what happens when she hits the water or would um, would, uh, you know, Charlie Parker. Ever be able to rise to the point of explaining saxophone playing as well as he could play the saxophone, mm-hmm. <laughs> or would Laurence Olivier be able to explain becoming Hamlet mm-hmm. as well as he could become Hamlet? Well, the answer to that is no, um, and so it's it's not their their wheelhouse so to mm-hmm. speak, um, but yet when you when you scratch the surface and ask them to talk about it, um, you know really most of them it was almost the sense that i was being let in on a secret mm-hmm. because they they thought it was kind of uh you know pretentious to talk about the things they felt and the um the locksmith who you know was probably one of the the finest locksmiths in in the world um, talked about how, well, you know, we really don't talk about this stuff because it's it's kind of weird, you know. Uh, something happens, and I can't really explain it. I know it's based upon years of experience and knowledge, um, but sometimes I'm watching a movie, and I'll just think, I should go down and look at that lock, mm-hmm. and the lock will have been sitting there for six months, and he couldn't open it, and he'll pick it up, and pick the lock Mm -hmm. and say, I don't know how I did that. And so there's this mysterious quality of creativity that goes into these seemingly mechanical, um, creations. Mm -hmm. And, and and that I found to be universally fascinating and also universally generalizable Mm -hmm. to what, uh, to, to not only what we do, but what creative people do. And the, the, I suppose one of the things I was trying to accomplish was to bring the people who are often thought of as being nothing more than technicians into that larger universe of um, people who are honored and revered for their creativity. There's uh, one of the one of the things that makes
1: the book so so good is in, in the pieces, the individual pieces. Are the like the descriptions of, of these people actually working with their hands because you were there watching them work on a project, um, which I think is so important. Was there any job that you were watching them do that you found really, really difficult to describe for the reader
2: so they could see the person doing it? Well, I can't specifically remember anything, but certainly. I was aware that I had to be able to, I, I did not want it in any way to feel like a how-to manual. And that there had to be, you know, there had to be a reason that, um, you know, I was describing what they were doing. And it had to be um, precise enough and short enough that the reader could be carried um, without having to stop and say okay now let me see exactly how was he using that rivet gun um i i was conscious of the idea that as in when you read poetry you don't really expect to understand every line literally you understand that you're supposed to be care you allow yourself to be carried from line to line and that you're going to come away with some kind of understanding and i wanted readers to do that i used the language of Woodworking, dado and dovetail, without without mm-hmm. defining it, and with the idea that that in many ways this was a a, a specialized language that was poetic for what these folks were doing, mm-hmm. and that as the reader you had to allow yourself to be carried through the experience without knowing, stopping and saying, this is what a dovetail is. Mm-hmm. Um, or this is what a uh, you know this is what a Scandinavian joint is in building of a of a frame house or something um or, or just saying you know stave churches I I didn't I, I, I made the assumption that readers were going to carry a bit with me but you have to also be thoughtful about how long you can do that though mm-hmm. so you can give you can do it a sentence or two and then people are going to get, Distressed with it, and so I was. I was thoughtful about that, Um, but I also wanted the. uh, I also wanted to make sure that there was this firm understanding that there was a physicality Mm -hmm. um, about this. I mean, it would be no different than if you were trying to describe how a surgeon did heart surgery. You know, you you'll have to be precise enough to capture the, the the skill that's needed to be able to run all the instruments and the scalpels that are required to be able to do this surgery. And then on top of that, the knowledge and experience that's required to know what to do with all those objects and then to be able to recreate what it looks like to be there watching it happen. So you've got all those levels of things going on at the same time. And, you know, I mean, we've read John McPhee, you know, we've read novelist Jim Harrison, we've read Cormac McCarthy. I mean, Cormac McCarthy describing how um, how a cowboy, um, you know, captures a wolf in a trap and then goes up and ties up the wolf as the wolf is still, you know, growling and trying to trying to kill him. Um, and he does it all in like a paragraph. Uh I'm not Cormac McCarthy, but I can learn something from realizing that I, I don't exactly see what he did in tying up that wolf. But I was I was carried through the experience mm-hmm. and felt like I had experienced it. Right. Uh Do you have you done a lot of work with your hands in your life? Not at all. I have um, done some when I was younger, as I say in the introduction. Um, I did it because of necessity. I did it because I couldn't afford to not do it. Um, you know, I remodeled the second floor of my house with a with actually the friend who dropped out of his Ph.D. program and went off to to build houses and decks and uh, and he came and we worked together and uh, you know I think we we worked about thirty. 16 hour days straight in a row and in the end I calculated that I saved $5,000 in my project and was determined that I would never do that again um, and you know I ponder a bit in the introduction why and in the epilogue why, why did this not this craft type of craft not catch me mm-hmm. like it caught others and also why did this craft that we do this reporting and writing craft why did it catch me. And yeah, I don't think there's any real answer to that. I think the simplest answer is that I really never, I never did it long enough to get what inevitably I found in each of these individuals, which was some epiphonic kind of experience that made them realize, holy Cripe, there is something magical spiritual profound going on in what I'm doing the 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 coppersmith who described himself as you know nothing but a but a but a party loving roofer um, who happened to be working on a job in Long Island with a with a actual sculptor who was building sculptures for the mansion and with the contractor who um, who was a aficionado of a philosophy of work and he was being imbued with these men's higher philosophy of art and work and the beauty and the wonder of it and up on the roof one day pounding copper around a chimney something happened to him that 20 years later he still can't explain. And he had this, 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 this experience that trans transported him almost to a different place as he was pounding copper. And, and he realized that, 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 that this was an experience that um, was deeply meaningful to him and, and it changed his life. And uh, every one of these folks had experiences that, 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 that made them sort of turn the corner and go, there's something going on in this work that is beyond just labor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and for whatever reason that happened to me, um, when it came to, uh, doing journalism and trying to be a better writerly journalist and being a better observer and reporter, um, I was transported at times, and uh, I think you get to be a bit of a hog for that feeling, you know? And you want to go back and, and have the chance to feel it again and again, and these people do. And a lot of them, most of them do it for very little money, and guess what? We do it for not so much money, too, usually. Right. Well, we're going we're gonna to take a short break. Uh,
1: when we return, we'll talk about uh, getting started in literary journalism with Walt Harrington.
0: This is Gangaroo the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, the Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu JDM.
1: Welcome back to Ganger the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm here with Walt Harrington, a former staff writer at the Washington Post Magazine and a journal- journalism professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Walt is here on campus at Ashland University as part of the River Teeth Nonfiction Conference. Walt, you moderated a panel that consisted of your former students, and you were talking about what it takes to do narrative or literary journalism for the first time. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, can you talk a little bit about that class that you teach and, and what you have your students do?
2: Well, I, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in a journalism program, not a creative nonfiction program. And uh, not an MFA um, nonfiction program. And so the students who come to me have previously often done high school journalism in their high school newspaper. Um, they've worked at the Daily Illini newspaper at the University of Illinois. They've had internships at, at uh at traditional newspapers and um, they have had the introductory classes into journalism, you know, editing, reporting one, maybe even reporting two. Um, but they, they're imbued with a very um, straight ahead, traditional um, kind of journalism training. And, and by that, I mean, not only the values of, um, and ethics, but also some of the um, assumptions about um, how the the place of the, the, the reporter um, in in the in the story process, mm-hmm. and so they they have to be introduced to the idea that it's okay for them to, in a sense, become a narrator. Um, that it's okay for them to delve into the um, beyond the beyond the most common comments that people make when when you talk to them that it's okay to take responsibility for digging into a person's mind and trying to understand and explain what motivates that person. Um, those are, Usually things that are beyond the purview of, um, you know, doing a news story or doing an interview with the mayor or even doing a feature story about, you know, the fireman who saves a cat from a tree or um, or the the school teacher who wins the Apple Teacher of the Year Award. Even if you do a feature story, it's really filled with with little quotes and. Um, Yes, it's such an honor. And why is Mrs. Smith such a good teacher? She cares so deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- that's about the level of it. And so, in this class, which um, I really think of as a as a class in doing doing uh, beginning literary journalism form on ordinary subjects. Mm-hmm. And the reason I really force my students to stick to ordinary subjects is they don't really have access to non-ordinary subjects. Oh, I want to do the the quarterback of the University of Illinois football team. Good luck getting more than 20 minutes of interview time with that person. And, you know, these are stories where they, we follow at a beginning level the the, the steps that uh, or the elements that I mentioned earlier, actually. They, they, they pick a subject and... Um, you know, in the case of the students who were here, former students who were here to talk about stories that they did and that were published, um, you know, one was a story about a about a minister in a very, very poor African-American church in a very, very poor neighborhood in Champaign, Illinois, um, where the entire neighborhood is being torn down for urban renewal, and his little church with 30 congregants will be torn down with it. Um, and it's really a story about, how he feels about that and thinks about it. And then what it is that that church actually provides the, 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 the few number of people who come to it. And, um, and so to do that, you know, Bob Holly is the, the student, former student's name, who's actually now a a working journalist. Um, you know, he had to go and interview the minister to get to know him, a bit um, about his life and uh, why he does this and how he came to do it, how he thinks about it, um, and then he had to attend church services. He had to interview people who are at the church service. Um, he had to, you know, collect nice description about the way the church looks, um, the way the the scratchy speakers sound, um, the um, you know the way that the people there are dressed. Um, you know, all of which is trying to take us inside this small world. And so, you know, again, those elements of immersion, um, creating a timeline that you can tell your story along and then um, having think being thoughtful about constructing scenes, mm-hmm. about collecting um, conversational or found dialogue and. Mm-hmm. Um, being thoughtful about detailed physical and environmental description, um, precise and being thoughtful about reporting through all your senses and then coming to some idea of what, well, what idea is going to animate this story. And in, in Bob's case, um, the minister had quoted from Ezekiel um, in, a, in a section in the Bible about the valley of the dry bones. And uh, on that very day that Bob used as the vehicle for the telling of the story. And the story in Bob's next line is, the question is, can these bones survive? And then that leads through the whole notion of, even though the church's building is being destroyed, can these bones survive beyond the the, the destruction of the physical church itself Um, and so all those things are woven woven in there and you know it's a challenge to get uh, to get students who have never done these things to think this way Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what actually I think most that's what the former students all talked about yesterday was the difficulty of you know you get out and you get so crazy about collecting detail I mean one student um, um, talked about you know how she how she spent a page and a half describing the steps walking up to the church when she was writing about a nun. Uh, you 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 become excessive in mm-hmm. terms of practicing the collection of detail, and then of course you have to help students understand well. Telling detail is better than just detail for detail's sake, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and try and get students to be comfortable. Um, being mature enough to to be intrusive enough to ask mm-hmm. questions um, you know of the nun I mean what about sexuality mm-hmm. uh, how does she deal with celibacy uh, these, are, these are personal questions but if you don't ask those questions you are uh, you're not really taking readers to a place where they're where they're being taken inside someone else's experience, and that's what these stories do. Mm -hmm. There is actually, um, for for people who are interested in doing this at at something of the beginning level, there's a piece I did some years ago um, called The Journalist Haiku, Mm And it, uh, it appeared in an odd place, the Children's Beat magazine of the Casey Foundation. But it's really, a, um, it's really an essay about how to do literary journalism pieces in about a thousand words. Mm-hmm. And I think if if people are interested in um, in thinking about this and recognizing what are the elements um, of these kinds of stories and how do I balance them together, uh, they can they can probably Google that that piece and and find it. Um, you know, I talk about how these stories are really tone poems that evoke something of human experience um, in the way that. Uh, you know the, the documentary photography of the of the of the Depression era. One single photo um, seems to say something to us, as opposed to watching a two-hour documentary film. And in a sense, these are these are single photographs. They're 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 in a sense word and repertorial snapshots um, that that. Give us a small piece of insight about about worlds often foreign to us, almost always foreign to us.
1: What's um What's the biggest mistake beginning reporters make when they when they attempt to do like a long narrative?
2: Well, long narratives are
1: a different thing. Or know? even like even it's like let's say a, a fifteen hundred
2: word yeah. story. Um, I can I'll, I'll answer it this way, Matt. Um, over the years of of, of of trying and succeeding at times in, in teaching the form to beginners. Um, one of the things that, that struck me is that it is easier to, quote, teach students to ask um, ask insightful questions. It's easier to teach them to collect telling detail. It's easier to teach them to um, observe and report through all their senses than it is to, quote, teach them that a story has to be about an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Figuring out what one's story is about. What it, and and I I resist the notion of talking in in an essay-like notion that what is your theme, Mm -hmm. you know, or what is your point. Um, It is more that, and I tell students, you need to have an idea, animates your story Mm -hmm. and even in the story i mentioned by bob holly you know the simple notion of can these bones survive Mm -hmm. raises a much larger question um that then animates the story and and fills the reader's mind as they're reading through the specifics of the story and leaves them with that question and i think wondering gee i wonder will this church will survive Mm -hmm. you know uh and that's the that's the hardest thing. Um, it. I mean, I, I think of you know we the, the famous John Franklin story that won the first Pulitzer Prize for feature writing many decades ago, Mrs. Kelly's Monster, and um, what makes that story so remarkable? Uh, well, John's told the story many times that. Uh, when in the middle of the brain surgery, the woman had an inoperable brain tumor, but the pain was so awful that she had to find a doctor who would try and remove it. She found a brilliant brain surgeon in Baltimore, who Johns Hopkins, who was willing to undertake this surgery. Um, he goes in to do the surgery, and John, of course, expected, oh, he'll be successful. You know, and after six hours, he closes her back up and walks out to the cafeteria, sits down and opens up his sack lunch, knowing that the woman's going to die. That essentially he has even hurried her death mm-hmm. with his attempted surgery. And John thought, oh, I've lost my story. I don't have a story. Who wants to read a story about a doctor who unsuccessfully you know, operates on a woman and she dies. And he talked about how it took him a couple of hours of, of, of pitying himself to realize, my goodness, as awful as it sounds, this is a better story Mm -hmm. because the story is not about a doctor saving a woman or a woman being saved. What it's about is every day doctors go in and play God and they're not God. Mm -hmm. And how does a doctor deal with not being God? And it's the it's the idea that animates that story, without that idea ever being stated. Mm-hmm. And so, those are the subtleties um, that are involved in in raising a story from really being a very nice, precise, detailed, interesting, descriptive story, informative story, raising it to another level where. Um, where concept is is animating the story right. and is actually taking the reader someplace and asking the reader to be thoughtful about something more than just uh, little church closes to urban renewal right um you said uh, you said at
1: at the conference that you tell your students to um, to not find the sweet spot in a story, but to find the bittersweet spot. Can you talk a little bit about what you
2: mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the classic uh, feature stories that, that we see are, you know, um, poor person triumphs over poverty. A handicapped person triumphs over handicap. Um, it's it's these stories where uh, that they are heartwarming, you know, but I've always believed that uh, when readers... Finish a story like that, they feel good, but somewhere inside they know they've been duped because life doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the wonder of life is that uh, we have to figure out how to enjoy the sweet at the same time that we accept the bitter. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in the story about the, the minister and his church, uh, it's not a story of, of, a rich person comes in and donates $500,000 for minister to build new church in a better neighborhood. Um, it's a story about, um, he's talking about having to have his church services in the living room of his trailer where he lives, um, and wondering if he'll be able to keep doing it and hoping that he will be able to keep doing it. Another story by, um, Megan Graham, a former student who what a wonderful story about um, a young man with a combination of multiple sclerosis and a disease that makes his immune system unable to fight off even the smallest bacteria, 25 year old man. Most of those who have that disease are dead long before then. And what is his life like? And it's, it can't be a story of man triumphs over handicap and disease. It had to be real to to really touch readers in a place where they know life really exists is to capture the hope of the young man's life, his efforts to have a meaningful and hopeful life, and the challenge of holding on to hope in the face of knowing that uh, this doesn't look so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's the power of bittersweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What do you have your students read in
2: your, in this class? Well, I it, it's it's come to sound a little self-centered, I, I <laughs> because I've I've written and and done a number of anthologies mm-hmm. that actually aim to help students do this right. kind of work. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the beginning of my, my, my teaching years, I, I used um, the literary journalist by, you know, by Mark Kramer and um, anthology by Mark Kramer. I used a wonderful friend's book, Patsy Sims, who was the director of the Goucher nonfiction narrative writing program for many years, another anthology of, of fine literary journalism. Um, and I, um, have used and still usually use a wonderful little book by a man named Thomas Berner, um, called, uh, the literature of journalism, which collects, um, short, maybe five page selections from a lot of older classic literary journalism, um, let us now praise famous men. Hiroshima, um, work like that uh, in cold blood, um, and these are these are books that I do not have my students read because I don't have time for them to read all of those kinds of classic works and also be introduced to a range of of shorter and more modern works mm-hmm. and so i have a book called intimate journalism the art and craft of reporting everyday life um and uh, that book is a little older now but i still use that book because um um i think it introduces students to really really wonderful high level professional um Inquiry into how do you make people's ordinary lives come to life and be profound and be meaningful to other people. Um, and um, I also now have an anthology that collects my, some of my student work. It's called Slices of Life. Um, and uh, and all three of my students from yesterday, all their pieces are collected in there. And I now have them. I used to have a website. I still have the website, intimatejournalism.com, where where students can read the work that former students have done. And uh, the reason I, I, I start them out with those pieces is because I want them to realize, well, for one, it scares the, the bejesus out of them because they go, Oh, my gosh, somebody my age and my experience did these stories. It gets their attention, but it also makes them realize they can do this. Um, and, uh, and so I then also have them read um, a number of essays about Literary journalism, and one would be the piece I just mentioned, Um, and I have them read a piece of mine um, called "Keeping the Non in Nonfiction," which has to do with the issue of accuracy Mm -hmm. and literal accuracy in. In the, in the creative nonfiction literary journalism movement where there's a kind of a difference of opinion between non-journalists and journalists about how literal we must be. On the journalism side of this, of course, I am completely committed to Uh, literal literalness Mm -hmm. and then they read um, a new collection of mine done with um, Esquire writer Mike Sager called Next Wave America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists and that grew out of um, conversations that Mike and I had about getting sick and tired of listening to people always talking about how, um, how literary journalism is dead. Nobody's doing it anymore. And, you know, the web's killed it. The reverse has actually happened. Mm-hmm. The web has created this remarkable repository of, um, a work being done, um, all over the place, uh, longformcom or org and, um, other, other, other locations, atavis.com, um, and the and so mike and i pulled together what we think are 19 excellent examples of people under age 40 because i would i my students would be reading work done by people my age you know from 60 and above and they would be going oh well sure you could do that in your day because journalism was different then mm-hmm. but nobody can do that anymore today and i would bring in you know, luminaries like David Finkel, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, MacArthur Prize winner from the Washington Post to talk to my students. And it would be, well, yeah, sure. But, you know, he started back in the day. Um, and so I started bringing in people who are closer, much closer to their age, mostly mm-hmm. in their mid thirties, early right. to mid thirties, who had done a have done accomplished work in, in the form. And it gets their attention a lot more because they realize my goodness these people are these people are have been doing this work and they they began in the digital era yeah. and because of that i think it gets their attention and the and the book just and the collection just reminds us of how many you know fine people there are out there doing that work
1: yeah the collection is called next wave and there's some phenomenal people in there from pamela koloff at texas monthly and michael cruz at the tampa bay times and justin heckert who is now in Indianapolis. And, well, I, uh,
2: he's not. He's in Indianapolis because his wife is editor. But of he's Indian's writing monthly, everywhere, right? But he's, yeah, he's written for the New York Esquire Times Magazine and, and now and, yeah. and Esquire and um, Grantland.
1: And, yeah, and, and Justin was our very first pod podcast guest. He oh, was number he's, one. He's uh, he's uh,
2: definitely. We don't even. We can't even call him an up and comer anymore. No, right? He's, he's an up. He's up. <laughs> and but of yeah. course, Will Hilton. Will, yeah, and yeah. Chris Jones, mm-hmm. um, and probably people that you've heard maybe less about because of where they're located, like Michael Cruz mm-hmm. uh, down in Florida, um, and uh, like Robert Sanchez out at, uh, is it uh, 5280 mm-hmm. in Denver, the city magazine there. Uh, there's, there are people doing, doing excellent work all over the place.
1: Um, well, only three of the 19 pieces came from newspapers. Um, did that surprise you?
2: Um, no, not really. I mean, I think it's... Um, I think it's the the reality of the of the modern world that we're living in. Um, newspapers, you know, before the mid seventies and up through maybe two thousand, um, long form narrative journalism was not. Not that common in in modern newspapers, and the 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 the, the movement of the narrative journalism movement and the creation of monopoly newspapers that were making money hand over fist mm-hmm. um, in an absolutely rapacious fashion for those couple of decades uh, created you know, some real opportunities. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that. When I came out of graduate school in journalism in 1975, I had interned at alternative city papers um, in Washington, D.C., and wanted to do long-form, magazine work. And, you know, my, my, my master's review committee, said, so, well, this is good work, but you're not going to be able to find any place to work because nobody's going to write stories longer than 14 inches anymore and uh, nothing's going to jump off the front page anymore because readers won't turn to jump pages. And this was the common wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure I'm glad I didn't follow it. But they couldn't anticipate that long-form and narrative journalism were going to become huge influences in American newspapering, but, you know, nothing lasts forever. Right. And, uh, there's, uh, in, in nothing lasted forever then either Mm -hmm. the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was a great newspaper in the late seventies and the 1980s. If you were interested in, what wasn't yet called narrative journalism, but if you were interested in writerly journalism, you wanted to be at the Philadelphia Inquirer from 1975 to 1985, when the period when they won like 17 Pulitzer Prizes or something. Uh, but the editor there left, and the tradition altered. Uh, it, it's, it, the world turns. Well, Walt, thanks
1: so much for joining us. It's been great talking with you. It's been a pleasure to be here. We've been talking with Walt Harrington. Harrington is a former staff writer for the Washington Post magazine. He's now a journalism professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His newest book, Acts of Creation, is available now. You can find a link to it at our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.